Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. And this is Patrick. And we are on the phone today with Lawrence O'Donnell, who is the host of The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC and the author of the new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's a pleasure. And I think the first thing we wanted to ask is your impetus to write this book. So the subtitle obviously suggests that this election was a pivotal election that affects our politics henceforth. But the other element of it that you find out in the first chapter is how this uh, had a personal effect on you and your generation. So can you speak for a minute about uh, the impetus to write this book from the personal perspective and then the importance of it politically? Yeah, you know, when when I started thinking about it, I was really just thinking about what is the most dramatic political story that I can tell. Uh, and that comes, I guess, from my background as a dramatist, uh, writing for the NBC show The West Wing, which was a political drama, uh, and other uh, dramatic writing that I've done. And so that's that's what I'm drawn to. And I realized pretty quickly that uh, it was the 1968 election, because I was in high school then, and uh, I lived through it as a high school student. And there are events that occur in 1968 uh, during that election that there are several events that if any one of them had occurred during any other presidential campaign, it would be the biggest thing that happened in that campaign. Uh, There were two assassinations, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, followed uh, just a few weeks later by Bobby Kennedy, who was a Democratic candidate for president. And uh, there were riots uh, throughout uh, the period, actually, uh, starting in the spring, and uh, a political upheaval in the Democratic Party, that the likes of which we'd never seen before, and something that we might see again uh, with President Trump, and that is uh, the incumbent Democratic president, who was heavily favored for re-election, got challenged uh, from within his own party for the nomination, and uh, that was... but by Gene McCarthy, and that challenge was so powerful uh, that Lyndon Johnson, who was considered, you know, just the wiliest and most powerful politician of the era, dropped out of his own presidential re-election race. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that was actually uh, after Bobby Kennedy had also joined the race, so there were two Democrats running against the incumbent Democratic president for the nomination. I think we may see something like that uh, with Donald Trump uh, when the Republican nomination comes up next time. Uh, But living through it was an intensely dramatic experience for everyone uh, above, you know, the lowest ages of childhood because uh, really everyone was subject to the possibility of losing a loved one in the war in Vietnam uh, because the draft was uh, the most important factor in uh, young men's lives. Everyone uh, over 18 had a draft card in their pocket and they could be drafted uh, at any moment and sent off to war in Vietnam. And so there was a a massive anti-war protest uh, movement that built uh, to a real peak in that year. And, you know, my older brothers were all subject to the draft and all 
worried about the draft, and I, I never heard anyone of um, college age at that time um, talking about life plans or what they were going to do when they finished college, because they were all trying to figure out what they were going to do about the draft, what, what they were going to do about Vietnam, with right. 99% of them trying to figure out a way to avoid it uh, and, and not serve in the military at all, and or figure out a way to join the military so that it, that, that would um, prevent them from having to serve in Vietnam. Because right. there were many strategies, you know, many, many, many different strategies, right. including one was maybe if you join, you'll get an assignment, uh, a better assignment in Germany or something like that, and you won't ever see combat. And that's, that's what my oldest brother chose to do, and it worked out for him. Uh, he joined, and he got an easy assignment, and he never left the United States. My cousin Johnny graduated from West Point in 1967 and was sent to Vietnam in uh, 1968 and lasted about three months before he was killed in Vietnam. And right. So 1968 was the first time that I went to a military funeral, and that was one of over 16,000 military funerals uh, in the United States that year. And just to put that number in perspective, just in the year 1968, we had over 16,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. In the total of American warfare in the 21st century, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the total combined of all of these now 17 years is about uh, 6,400. Right. Uh, that was basically the summer of 1968. The other big impact of this election is its impact on journalism and on television journalism. You opened the book with the story about Roger Ailes uh, becoming a part of the Nixon campaign. And uh, you talk about in the book very eloquently about how um, the Nixon campaign was turned into a series of basically photo ops where he shakes hands uh, with people in New Hampshire rather than really barnstorming through New Hampshire in the way that George Romney uh, might have been doing. And so uh, as a journalist, can you talk about the effect of this election on the way that journalism was done and how it might have contributed to making uh, journalism about the horse race of politics more than uh, the, the governance. I think you called it when you came here, you called it the great unstudied subject was what does winning mean in a political context? Can you elaborate on that idea? Uh, yeah, well, there's a, there's a bunch of questions in, in there. Uh, I'll, I'll come to the what does winning mean um, at a later spot. Let me just deal with um, how the campaign was covered and how it was run. And yes, Roger Ailes was in show business, uh, you know, producing a daytime talk show that was kind of like the Ellen DeGeneres show of that era. And Richard Nixon was a guest on the show, was very impressed with Ailes. And he drew him into politics. And that changed American politics forever. Uh, first of all, the television campaign that Roger Ailes ran for Richard Nixon in 1968 became the model for all campaigns since then. Uh, and every campaign since then has used some of what Roger Ailes created at, at that time in terms of uh, the style of TV commercials and other things. Uh, but then Roger Ailes, after uh, helping elect Richard Nixon twice, uh, went on to help Ronald Reagan get elected twice, uh, George H.W. Bush get elected. Uh, and then in the 1990s, 1996, he created uh, Fox News. He was the uh, the president and, and 
creator of Fox News. And then, and, and his mission was to build a Republican television network, and he succeeded in doing that. And that television network then helped elect George W. Bush and re-elect George W. Bush, and then uh, obviously tr- was a tremendous help in electing Donald Trump. Donald Trump would not be president today if Richard Nixon had not talked Roger Ailes into politics in 1968. And the, the you know, the, the press actually did um, as good a job covering the 1968 campaign with many fewer resources uh, than the modern media does. There's a massive amount of additional resources to covering campaigns now. In 1968, there were only three television networks. ABC, CBS, and NBC. That's all. There are only three. Uh, And now you have those three networks uh, plus um, literally dozens of others that cover the uh, presidential campaigns and cover them actively. Uh, You have the entire world of coverage that's been opened up by the Internet, and I don't have to explain to anyone how vast that is uh, and multi-voiced that is. Um, and it's not better. The total amount of useful information and true information about campaigns is not better than it was in 1968. Um, and and the um, the but the concentration pretty much always remains on the horse race. It's very hard to get uh, any real examination of the issues uh, and in uh, political campaigns. And so uh, that's pretty much always been the case and and so the um i mean for you know for example in and and the and the issues in 1968 were almost entirely focused on the vietnam war just hyper focused on the vietnam war as would make sense with a country at war there are very there's really no other issues with a country at war losing 16,000 uh you know citizens a year to that war so um for example, the top income tax rate in 1968 was 70%, and it wasn't even a campaign issue. It, it, the the idea of you know let the Republicans saying you know let's cut the top income tax rate. I mean, technically, Nixon was in favor of it, but he barely ever mentioned it uh, because it was completely focused um, on the Vietnam War, and the um, the, the 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 issue of how we cover politics and that horse race stuff means that a horse race end, there's a finish line and there's a winner and there's a second place and there's third place and, and you know they, we all understand exactly who that is this is the winner um, but in in campaigns presidential campaigns especially sometimes ideas win and the candidate with those ideas does not win and so the anti-war movement um, won but it didn't win the election of 1968, and it didn't win the election of 1972. But the anti-war movement ended the Vietnam War years sooner than the Vietnam War was going to end. If there had been no anti-war candidates in 1968, the Vietnam War still would have been going at the end of the 1970s. It just would have kept going, you know, for years beyond when it did. And so we keep score in the and and. And we we you know decide the winners uh, on this day in November, which we consider the end of the horse race. And it might be the end of the horse race, but it's not the end of the competition for ideas. And so um, the 
won. It just didn't win within the election cycle of presidential campaigns. So, Mr. O'Donnell, we have uh, a certain idea of politicians like Kennedy and Johnson and McCarthy um, fracturing uh, the party, but uh, can you talk about the effect of organizations like the American Americans for Democratic Action and uh, and then people like Allard Lowenstein? Yeah, the the Democratic Party has always had uh, organizations in and around it that are based on ideas, not really based on politics. And some of those uh, organizations are uh, based in liberal thinking. Some of them are based in labor movement thinking. Uh, and and they are pushing in, in their desired directions all the time. And Al Lowenstein was this fascinating character of the period. He was this gadfly involved with a lot of uh, liberal Democratic Party affiliated organizations and he was the one who was looking for a presidential candidate uh, to run against the war and therefore run against Lyndon Johnson in Democratic primaries and without Al Lonestain I don't think there would have been a peace candidate. I'm sure that uh, uh, Gene McCarthy would not have run and Bobby Kennedy would not have run. Uh, Lowenstein spent uh, over a year trying to convince Bobby Kennedy to run for president and uh, and try to, as he put it, dump Johnson uh, and run against the Vietnam War. And Bobby Kennedy thought about it, and then he rejected the idea, and then he thought about it some more, and then he rejected the idea. And Lowenstein kept circling back to him. And eventually Lowenstein gave up and started looking for other Democrats, and he talked to Senator Gene McCarthy, and Gene McCarthy said, well, Bobby Kennedy should do that. And uh, then he would uh, talk to some other senator who would say, oh, you should talk to uh, Senator George McGovern. And then McGovern would tell Lowenstein, you should talk to Gene McCarthy. And McCarthy would say, oh, you should talk to George McGovern. And eventually, uh, Gene McCarthy was the one who uh, basically just couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take the deception uh, that Lyndon Johnson was... Uh, was managing around the Vietnam War. And so Gene McCarthy was the one who jumped in and decided to do it. And, and Gene McCarthy had this huge success in New Hampshire where he came in second, but he, he got over 40% of the vote. And he was expected to get 4% of the vote maximum when he first went up to New Hampshire. So it was a stunning uh, victory, as it, as it were, for, for Gene McCarthy. And that was on a Tuesday night and on the next the following Saturday morning, uh, Bobby Kennedy announced he's jumping in the race too. And Lowenstein, having talked to Gene McCarthy into the race, was now really emotionally torn and 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 strategically torn because he had to back Gene McCarthy, the guy he got to run, but he always believed that Bobby Kennedy was the better and stronger candidate. And so there's a real there's a real mix of deep uh, personal drama in this book and in this story. Uh, and they are the very real kinds of personal dramas that people live with uh, in politics and government. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the incredible parts of the, of the story is the way you, um, you describe some of the personal drama in it. And I wanted to ask on the subject of Al Lowenstein, how does a, a sort of liberal gadfly like this get the sort of access um, to to be pressuring these politicians, um, particularly when the people, the other people in Kennedy's ear, are sort of the the JFK intellectuals 
um, you know, like uh, Richard Goodwin and Ted Sorensen, who are sort of pulling for this, you know, Bobby, wait till 72. How does a guy like, uh, like Lowenstein get that sort of access? And uh, is there the sort of possibility for these idea groups to have that influence on the Democratic Party today? I don't think uh, an Al Lowenstein would, would work today. Um, it was a it was a smaller world. There were less, there were smaller armies around senators. You know, now the staffs of the, in the Senate offices are bigger. The staffs on their campaigns are bigger. They have big fundraising staffs uh, that insulate them from influences like uh, Al Lowenstein would bring. Uh, Lowenstein got in the room with Bobby Kennedy, with Gene McCarthy, with Eleanor Roosevelt, with... Um, uh, a vast array of people, including some Republicans like Don Rumsfeld, uh, who really loved Al Lowenstein and actually spoke at Lowenstein's funeral, um, and Teddy Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, all that stuff. It, it, first of all, Lowenstein was a very, very smart guy. That that's point one. And and if if you did sit down and talk to him, you'd pick that up pretty quickly. Uh, and so, smart politicians value smart input. Uh, the trick is, how do you get in the door with him? And and his talent, Lowenstein's talent, was as a writer. He was a very good writer. And he was a wide-ranging thinker. And he wrote about the situation in South Africa, for example, before anyone in the United States was thinking about it in the early 1960s. Uh, did important writing on that. And uh, because of uh, his writing, his public uh, writing, people wanted to talk to him about I, about things like what's going on in South Africa because no one else was was talking about it. And so then, at that point, he's he's in the door. And uh, Bobby Kennedy had to go to South Africa at one point uh, to give a speech, so he asked Al Lowenstein to write that speech for him. And this is years before the presidential campaign. Uh, and, and so he had a talent, um, but I promise you that in today's world, the professional staff surrounding senators would see a Lowenstein as nothing but a nuisance who they would be trying to uh, keep out of the room. And uh, maybe, you know, Lowenstein once in a while might be able to get his voice heard on a cable news show or something like that. But uh, the professional staff now really tries to keep people like that out. Mm. Can you um, talk more about uh, what seemed different uh, about that political landscape? But for example, um, the strange, or seems strange from um, a modern point of view, but the mixed parties of, uh, for example, Nelson Rockefeller um, running as a liberal Republican. Is that right? Yeah. Well, in 1968, um if I told you that I was a Democrat, you would not know if I was a liberal or a conservative or a segregationist. Uh, if I told you I was a Republican, you wouldn't know if I was a liberal or a conservative uh, or a segregationist or, or who knows what. Uh, those labels didn't tell you uh, what I thought. Uh, in 1968, that, beca that began the death of liberalism in the Republican Party, and the last man standing as a liberal on a Republican convention stage was the mayor of New York, John Lindsay, who had to second the nomination of Spiro Agnew 
for vice president. Liberals were never, ever allowed on Republican convention stages again. And basically, they died out. Um, there were a bunch of liberal Republicans at the time, Rockefeller, uh, Ed Brooke, senator from Massachusetts, John Lindsay, the mayor of New York City, um, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father. And they, they all died out, and the last of them, really the very last of them, was uh, John Chafee, who was a Republican senator from Rhode Island, um, who I worked with when I worked in the United States Senate. And uh, you really couldn't tell the difference between John Chafee as a Republican senator and the Democratic senators from the neighboring states in terms of their voting records. There was virtually no difference. Right. Um, but but they all have disappeared, and Republicanism has become uh, nothing but what used to be the right wing of the Republican Party. I mean, the reason it was called the right wing is because there was a left wing and there was a middle of the Republican Party. Mm. There isn't more. There is only that right wing. And uh, the Democratic Party has become similarly, but not as extremely uh, isolated that way. Uh, the Democratic Party used to have a very big range, and what it doesn't have anymore is what I would call conservatives. It, it definitely has uh, liberals, it definitely has moderates. I think most of them are actually moderates, uh, but it has no more conservatives. There used to be, you know, Democratic senators from uh, Texas and Georgia and Louisiana and Alabama, Mississippi. They were all conservatives, well, um, and, well, and that's all disappeared. What would that look like today? I mean, do you think that's an important thing for the party um, and for the sake of, you know, maybe easing the gridlock on Capitol Hill? What would it look like to have a conservative Democrat today who takes generally socially liberal positions but can uh, come to some sort of compromise and move things forward on Capitol Hill? We see, I mean, right within the structure of that, we lost conservatism because we described our conservative as someone who takes socially liberal positions. Right. Well, uh, conservative is, conservatism is all about uh, conservative social positions. That's what it is about. It is more about that than it is about tax cuts. Mm. Uh, tax cuts is a relative novelty. Uh, in, it's a fairly recent um, you know, uh, appendage of, of conservatism. Ronald Reagan raised taxes several times. He also cut taxes, but he was not you know, religiously attached to the concept of only making taxes go down. Uh, and so um, it that's what the Southern Democrats were. The Southern Democrats, you know, were all anti-abortion. I mean, in the 1990s, you know, we had uh, Democratic senators from Louisiana, and they were all anti-abortion, yeah. and, and in all of its forms. And they uh, and they voted with the Democrats. I'd say about uh, 65-70% of the time. Uh, but that's how the Democrats managed to have 57 Democrats in, say, 1993-94, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, right. first two years. Right. Uh, because they had, at, at that time, the Democrats had senators from Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama. It's utterly inconceivable today. Right. I wanted to ask about telegraphing the effects of this election into the present day. Um, when you look about the uh, at the way TV had an effect on this election, and you consider the effects of how we cover elections as horse races, how do you balance on a daily basis the idea of winning after the election, as you were talking about, 
with winning during the election, uh, when you're making sort of editorial judgments about what you're going to cover and what you think viewers uh, need to hear versus what they uh, want to hear regarding, you know, the antics of the president? Well, if you're talking about, it all depends on the news source you're talking about. You know, if you're talking about the New York Times, they're going to do a reasonably good job of uh, covering the horse race stuff and uh, using a similar amount of print real estate to cover the issues. Uh, for example, the New York Times is the only place that I read any coverage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade proposal during the presidential campaign. That's the only place there was any coverage of it. Uh, Bernie Sanders was against it. Hillary Clinton was in favor of it before she turned against it because that's where the, the pressure was coming from Sanders. Donald Trump was against it. Uh, there was not one word of coverage on television about what the Trans-Pacific Partnership actually was, mm. what it does, what countries it involves, and why President Obama is in favor of it. Not one word of coverage about it. And it was one of the most important issues in the campaign. So there's really no balance in if you're talking about commercial television coverage. There's no balance at all. Everything you see in commercial television, no matter what it is, uh, no matter what you see between the commercials, if you're watching a comedy, if you're watching a drama, if you're watching you know, a game show, or if you're watching news, if it has commercials, the mission of the stuff that appears between the commercials is to get more people to watch the commercials. Mm -hmm. That's its objective. It does not have any other objective. And so, um, so every decision you see made in cable news and every time they left those cameras just aimed at Donald Trump for an hour and a half on the stage, it was because they believed if they cut to anything else, they would lose viewers. They would have fewer eyeballs between their commercials. Mm -hmm. So it's never a mystery. You don't ever have to sit around thinking, why are they doing that? You know, why, why is he talking about that? Why is that show talking about that? It's because... Within the business therein, that's the best thing that that company can figure out uh, to get eyeballs. And you know, some things get more eyeballs than others. You know, like I mean, CNN, for example, in cable news, runs a distant third, a really distant third, to MSNBC and Fox News. And you watch the model on CNN, which is let's argue back and forth, no matter what the subject is. No matter how clear the subject is, no matter how indefensible a certain idea is, let's bring someone in to defend that idea. And then we'll have another one of our stars fight that idea. And from that fight, we might create a little bit of video that we can get circulating on the Internet. And, you know, that's, that's one that's a formula. Right. Uh, there used to be more of that in cable news, but the reason you don't see more of it is that it actually doesn't work in, right. in the ratings. The audience actually is expressing itself very clearly. That's its third choice. It doesn't like that stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's slightly mysterious to me why CNN stays wedded to a formula that isn't working, but it, but it won't. You know, when you, when you see that formula change at CNN, it'll be because they stared at the ratings for so long and they just couldn't take it anymore. Right. And, and it's interesting to note that that format has its roots in the 68 election when you're talking about the Vidal, yeah. uh, the Vidal debates. Um, 
with you know as we come to the last uh, couple minutes here, um, I just wanted to ask a question about then how how does your philosophy approach that? You you spoke beautifully here while you're uh, while you were here at BU about how Rachel Maddow can make listeners uh, believe that what she's talking about is important in a way that a lot of news hosts uh, cannot, so she can go into the nitty-gritty of a lot of news subjects. What philosophy do you bring, sort of bouncing off Rachel at the, uh, at the late hour of the night, uh, to try to speak about um, some of the important things going on, maybe the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership? A couple weeks ago we were talking about the, the West Virginia teacher strike. Um, what, what, what do you bring to that? Well, you know, just <clears throat> on Rachel for a second, she is an extraordinary gift uh, to cable television because she doesn't think about audience, she doesn't think about ratings, she doesn't think about anything other than what does she care about today. Mm -hmm. And she's going to go out on television and present what she cares about today in the clearest and most compelling way she possibly can. And what I love about that is this is a totally pure exercise. It is a pure intellectual exercise uh, in, in every way, and the audience loves it. And the audience loves it for the same reason they love, you know, great television series uh, like The West Wing, and that's because the author's grip on the audience is so strong. Um, as for what I'm doing at 10 o'clock, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just floundering around in, in the madness of Trump all day, uh, trying to figure out uh, which one of these is, is the one we begin with, um, and then trying to find um, what I have to say about it. And sometimes I don't have something to say about it. Mm. And, and that's when, I mean, I don't have much to say about it. And, and that's when I just pull the guests in sooner because I actively want to know what they think. I actually want to hear other people talking about this to help me form the way I, I think about it. Um, because I, I, so much of it is, is just, uh, you know, utterly uh, inexplicable and, and, and genuinely horrible uh, for democracy and for the future of the country and for the world. Uh, that I'm kind of stunned by it a lot. I'm kind of thrown by it. And, uh, and I'm slower. I'm much, much slower. I would much rather hear what I say about something a week after it's happened mm. than hear what I have to say about it the day it happens. I'm just much slower in right. thinking about it. Right. And that, but that's the difficulty, of course, of, uh, of, I'm sure, being on air nightly. The one thing I wanted to say, though, is that, um, you know, you, you uh, from my perspective, just as a viewer, um, you have an incredible presence on the television. I'll, I'll never forget uh, when you came back um, from the accident that you had had and you talked about being Mr. Anchorman uh, in, in front of the camera on your first segment back. It was a really powerful moment on television. And so um, I wanted to say, you know, thank you for joining us uh, on the Common Thread podcast. Where we're kind of doing the same thing that you're doing is trying to figure stuff out uh, by asking questions. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that when I came back from being off for a couple of months because of uh, an accident and surgery, uh, the thing I admitted that I thought was pretty obvious was that I'm not a real anchorman. I don't really know how to do this as an anchorman. <laughs> and so yeah. you're, you're watching an amateur every night and anything could go wrong at any moment. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thanks so much. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, our listeners will go take a look at the book, Playing With Fire. Uh, it really is a tremendous, a tremendous read. It reads very quickly. Uh, it reads dramatically and uh, tells a really important story about American politics. Thank you very much. podcast listeners this is kobe from the common thread podcast that was lawrence o'donnell the author of playing with fire the 1968 election and the transformation of american politics he's also the host of msnbc's the last word with lawrence o'donnell we want to extend our extend our thanks to him for taking time out of his busy schedule to speak with us and there's one more thing we'd like to know before we go off the air which is that if you are interested in having conversations like these you can do it Uh, You can go to bu.edu slash htc and find the Common Thread podcast under programs in order to apply. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and until the next time, we'll keep looking for the Common Thread.